Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us for a new episode. Also, great pleasure to welcome my co-conspirators here, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great discussion ahead, so let's just get started. Phil, I'll turn it to you. Great. Thanks, John. I wanted to take today as a chance to respond to a question we got inbound on John and Elliot's favorite social media platform, Twitter, a couple of months ago uh, as we were wrapping up the first season. And it was from someone who's uh, Twitter handle was slow-mo followed by a whole bunch of digits. So I don't know who exactly it is, but I thought it was a good question. It, it was about confidence versus overconfidence. And the person asked if confidence is essential for successful investing as in life, but overconfidence can get you killed in both investing and in real life. How do you balance the two? And I think that's a really interesting question because it is true. I think I, I distinctly remember a section at the, I think it was toward the end of Jeff Graham's book, Dear Chairman, where he was talking about Warren Buffett and, and Buffett's well-known diatribes against over-diversification, right? That your 50th best idea is definitely not going to be as good as your 10th best idea. And that any sort of professional manager who's you know owning hundreds of stocks at any given moment is almost destined to underperform and all that sort of thing, which is of course, logically true. It's mathematically true. But the point was that you know if you're not Buffett or if you're at least not a reasonably skilled and focused professional investor or a, an amateur who's paying a lot of attention and kind of knows what he or she is doing, that actually will get you killed, right? Investing like Buffett or being overconcentrated will get you killed for a whole bunch of reasons, right? It's basically a symptom of overconfidence, right? If you think you're better than you are, you will get killed in investing. And I thought that was an excellent point. It doesn't get called out enough, and so I, you know. But just like everything, I mean, I, I think the key point of this whole topic will be that there are paradoxes in everything. If there's an important idea in investing, it almost certainly entails a paradox. So in this case, yes, you need confidence to act. Any sort of investment decision you make, almost literally every single one, entails an act of confidence where you're saying I'm right and someone else, or in many cases, almost everyone else is wrong. So how do you balance that confidence against the risk of being overconfident? And you know, one way, of course, which uh, does get quite a bit of attention, although not in the context of being called out for the obvious paradox, is, is exactly what Buffett himself recommends, which is that if you're going to be a confident investor, if you're going to do something with the knowledge that you think you have, that's one thing. If you're not, you need to be very careful not to be overconfident and just index and be as diversified as possible. You want to truly be a know-nothing investor. And this is where I think it's important because I think true, uh, humble, professional investors that know what they're doing don't often fall into an overconfidence trap, although it, it is certainly pervasive. But the real death, I think, is in the middle. You don't want to be stuck you know, somewhere in between knowing something and knowing nothing and, and still making active decisions, right? So I think that's why it's such powerful advice that there's just absolutely nothing wrong with being extremely conservative and extremely diversified in, in indexing. Um, but I think the point remains that if you are going to be any sort of active investor, there's a whole litany of biases you have to be aware of. 
And you have to start with the premise that you have to do things that will only not get you killed if you're wrong. This is why a margin of safety is the you know, preeminent you know, dictum in the, in the entire value investing canon. You just have to take bets where if tails you win, heads you don't lose very much. I mean, these are basic concepts, but I think people get lost, to the fact, lost in the fact that valuations matter, that balance sheets matter, that you know, things can change and that things can go wrong. And that, you know, we've talked about this as an entire previous episode that, you know, you have to not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool in the first place. So if something has a risk of being a zero, I kind of stop right there. And and then it's really a two-tailed question. One is that if this is an insurance style bet or a venture capital style bet, and by that, I mean, if I'm insuring a diversified portfolio of bets whereby... I know that there's a chance of a big earthquake or a big earthquake or a big hurricane where I can take a very painful loss. That's one thing. And if I think I've done the right underwriting, so to speak, and I have the odds on my side, that's all fine and well, even though there is, you know, theoretically a risk of a, you know, very painful zero on an individual individual basis, there's no risk of a zero on a portfolio basis because the, the second step analysis is, or I guess doing a little backwards, the first step of the analysis, if there's any Russian roulette element to it whatsoever. There's just no re. There's no need to go any further. I just completely stop right there. So, if it's a if it's a risk of losing everything on an individual investment, such that it would torpedo the entire portfolio, if it was anything that would jeopardize the health or the reputation of the fund or me personally, my family, etc., it's just you, you stop right there, right? It's a very simple business like decision where where that's as far as you go. And, and digging down a little bit more into the, the nuances of how not to fall into the, the overconfidence trap, I think the first thing you have to do is, is to be extremely aware of it and how pervasive it is. So I think the questioner is probably ahead of the game just by the fact that he asked the question in the first place, because I think the most uh, troublesome implications from overconfidence come from people that are not aware of it, right? I think the, uh, there's a great essay uh, called Overconfidence and Autobiography, written by Jason Zweig back in December of 2019, where he talks about how overconfident he was as a as a college freshman. And he said something to the effect at the beginning of the essay that there's no more dangerous person in the world than an idiot who thinks he's brilliant, right? Which is very true. And on the on the flip side, or kind of related to that, is that wherever you are in this spectrum, you never want to underestimate the man who overestimates himself. So I think these sort of you know, pithy aphorisms point to how pervasive this concept is. So I think you need to just constantly be aware of it. No less an authority than, than Danny Kahneman has said that if he had a magic wand to eliminate just one psychological bias, and he's the world's leading authority on, on this topic, in my opinion, and in most people's opinion, you know, the one bias that he would choose to eliminate to reduce the, the misery and, and complications created in the world would be overconfidence. So that tells you something right there. The single best way I've found to combat overconfidence is by focusing on base rates. So this is a concept we've talked a lot about before, and I really want some sort of understanding as to how likely a reference class of circumstances or bets would be, and then how far divergent from that is what I'm saying is going to be true or is true now. How much am I really sticking my neck out? Because I think a lot of people make really bold, overconfident claims, and they don't really even understand how bold and overconfident they are. They think it's like, you know, a 50-50 bet and they're saying, no, it's 60-40. And it's like, no, that's not even close. Like the, you know, the actual base rate is like 55-45 to begin with. And you're saying it's 90-10. 
I mean, that makes a huge difference, right? And, you know, people who play games of chance, you know, things like poker probably intuitively understand this better than, than most, but you really have to understand those odds and those base rates. Everything has a probability associated with it. And I think if you take that view that everything is a probability adjusted bet, that will help you reduce your overconfidence. Because if you start with this concept that I could be wrong and there's a number associated with how likely I am to be wrong, and that number is never zero, that will sober you up in a big hurry. And so the problem, of course, is that almost all the probabilities that matter, whether it's in investing or in life, are hidden or they're unknown precisely. They can't be calculated you know, down to two decimal places or even down to a single number of any, of, of any specificity. So when those probabilities are hidden or unknown precisely, what do you do? It doesn't mean you ignore them. Right? It just means you have to focus in, in broader terms and use a broader range. Um, so the other, I, I went through then and made a list of the other biases that, that I think really pop up and, and kind of create overconfidence, particularly with, a, with an eye toward investing, of course, uh, things you should avoid or things that I have a list. I literally have a, a list of these. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. It's hanging over my desk um, and they're mostly alphabetical. So don't take these as one being more important than the other. Um, the first one is anchoring. It, whatever I paid, whatever price I think something's worth, you know, prices that I paid in the past are totally irrelevant. Target prices are totally irrelevant. They're all useless. They have no utility in the real world. And all they do is tie me into an overconfident mindset. So I try to ignore them completely. Uh, group thinking peer pressure, you know, when you're in any sort of community setting, whether it's an actual investment firm, whether it's an informal investment club, whether it's all your FinTwit bros, peer pressure and groupthink are a very real thing and they can lead to tons of overconfidence. And I see it on an almost daily basis and it's pervasive and it's hugely problematic. Uh, I think a lot of people ignore or are unaware of the planning fallacy whereby they're so overconfident about what something will do, when it will be done, how long it will take. You know, the, the famous quote on this is that, you know, the, they asked a bunch of leading psychological practitioners how long it would take them to write a textbook. And the average response they got was that they thought it would take two years. And the shortest textbook was completed in something like four and a half years. And the average was seven. I'm getting those numbers a little off, but you get the point, right? People almost always underestimate things like that. They're overconfident in their ability to get things done on a schedule. You see this in kitchen remodeling projects and renovations of all kinds, of course, right? So that, that that's a symptom or, or potentially correlated with a cause of overconfidence. Um, something called the ostrich effect, which is, you know, you just, when something goes wrong, you, you can't quite bring yourself to believe that you were in fact mistaken and you stick your head in the sand. And I've seen this over and over again in myself and, and others. And I've just tried to shame myself. I don't know of any other way to put it into just acting as quickly as I can and eating that humble pie as quickly as I can. The time to act on any sort of problem that I've discovered is right now, not tomorrow, next, not next week, not next month. It has to be dealt with right now. Um, the contrast effect and, and framing effects are also very popular in, in the sense of I, I see them almost every day uh, and people get them or use them to ill effect, I should say. So relative value I think for most of us and what we're trying to do is completely and totally useless. So I, I've mentioned this before. I think people often confuse pricing and valuation all the time, right? So if you're trying to price a home in your neighborhood and you say, what is this home worth? 
you're not really asking what it's worth because what it's worth entails a lot of other questions. It could be, you know, the capitalized value of rent you could charge. It could be the financial plus non-financial value of, of having a nice place to live. It has nothing to do with what the neighbor or the price per square foot sold for down the street, right? So likewise, you know, when you see something that really sticks out and, and it contrasts with something very starkly, that tends to create a very uh, clear impression of your mind of something, potentially what it could be worth, and create a lot of overconfidence because that that framing effect can be just enormously powerful and it it can lead you astray pretty quickly. The halo effect and authority by and authority bias kind of work together in my mind. This is where I think the concept of cloning, which we've talked about before, is a double-edged sword. You know, look, of course I want to know what some of the best investors of the world are doing and what they think and what they're buying or what they're selling, but that can lead me to all sorts of overconfidence because just because brilliant investor XYZ bought something that may or may not have anything to do with why I should or should not buy it. And it, to me, it's just not good enough. And I think the concept of cloning where you take an, an idea from A and just transfuse it into your own body is really pretty dangerous and leads to a lot of overconfidence because I think you skip you, you skip steps in your own research process and you can really get led astray by doing that. Uh, mental accounting is another one where you know you can kind of mentally write off gains or losses because they came in one security, one investment, one asset class, one period of time, whatever the case may be, and it can lead you to be overconfident about the reasons behind that or your ability to successfully do that again. It's just very easy to fool yourself when you're using mental accounting. Um, availability bias and recency bias. Again, this is where things that just happened tend to really stick out. So I think you saw this ad infinitum after the financial crisis. I know I, I fell victim to it to a, to a certain extent. I was pretty successful and made a lot of money for the fund that I worked for at the time, shorting the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. And our largest uh, limited partner at the time came to us and asked us to start a short-only fund in 2009. And I knew that was probably not going to be a great idea. And sure enough, it was not a great idea, but you know there was enough mental gymnastics both for me all the way up through the top of the firm to convince ourselves to do it. And it was all just because of the availability and the recency bias of us to make, of it to make us overconfident to think that like that was even remotely in the realm of, of possible, right? So, uh, and then the last one I think that I'd, I'd call out is, is, for lack of a better term, the narrative fallacy, right? Human beings have this enormous need to explain things, to create these stories and narratives, to put some framework to the world and to not just describe things to chance and randomness. You know, the human brain just can't handle the counterfactual of, well, this happened because, you know, the coin flip landed a certain way or because a person got lucky. You know, they, they generally want stories where, you know, there's a hero who set out to do something and achieved his goal or whatever the case may be. And I, I see this all the time today with, you know, Look, there could be a great idea, a very valid business need, but the the narrative fallacy just takes this thing and runs away with it, and all reason and logic and numeracy just gets thrown out the window, and people get way overconfident about what they know and they don't know. So anyway, we can put a list of these up. They're all well known. I, these are all ideas that I've stolen um, from other people. Um, there, there's nothing unique or new to me in here. I've just found that over time, by far, for me, the three most important words in investing are, I don't know. And so if I take that attitude that everything has a probability, I don't often even know what that probability is, but that I'm trying to take what I know and, and disprove it. I'm looking for disconfirming evidence. I want people to disagree with me, right? I mean, we talked about Danny Kahneman earlier. 
And one of the most amazing things I've seen him talk about was when he was writing his book, again, with actually Jason Zweig was kind of the ghostwriter for that book. Um, yeah, they would write thousands and thousands of words, an entire chapter, and Danny Kahn would just trash the whole thing and start over because he didn't like it. And he said in relation to that and, and other research projects that he would take on was that he just, he was better than most at not having a sunk cost and he liked changing his mind. So if you can cultivate this mindset of, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm going to change my mind and acknowledge it. I think that will really help avoid overconfidence as well. So that's it for me. What do you guys think? What, what about how do you balance confidence versus overconfidence and what tips and tricks do you have? Yeah, you know, this is a great topic. But first, Phil, I got to say, I think it's your favorite social network, too, because I can't imagine you liking <laughs> Facebook more than Twitter. So, well, that's I, yeah, that would it would win. Uh, it would win in that race. That is very true. Okay. But just wanted to get you on the record and establish that. No, I um, do. I'm happy to go on the record as saying I like Twitter more than Facebook and Instagram and all the rest, but it's also an exercise in relative valuation because that is the, <laughs> the tallest tree in a very short forest. It doesn't matter. Favorite's favorite, right? Yeah, there we no. go. <laughs> so, you know, I think this is a truly fantastic question because you know, I loved your topic, Phil, if in season one about having two competing ideas at the same time. And one of them is uh, in investing, I think you really need to balance both conviction and humility. Um, you need at all times to be very confident, but you also need to be humble. And so, you know, I think that's really challenging. You have to have good awareness of yourself to know when, yes, I need to dig in and put my feet solidly in the ground and hold the line and know that I'm right above Mr. Market himself. And other times you need to be like, yeah, I'm actually wrong and, and move aside. Um, and it's really, really hard. Um, but so there are a few things that I was thinking about while, while you were talking, Phil. And you know, I think you had some great uh, stuff on the biases as well. Um, but I think it's right on. You, you use this phrase, prob everything's a probability adjusted bet, right? So like in building your actual, uh, in structuring your actual position, you are ascribing some degree uh, of probability to the failure option, to the idea that you're wrong. Um, and obviously that's not about the skew. That's just the actual probability that you're, you're just not right in your thesis. And I think a lot about Soros saying that every investment is a testable hypothesis, you're not actually, you know, saying with 100% certainty that you think you're right. But then there is something really powerful in once you make this hypothesis, having things you're looking for to give you signs that you know you're right. And many times that happens in tandem with the market acknowledging that you are in fact right. Or, you know, you can flip everything around that I'm saying to say wrong as well. Um, but the most interesting times are those where you know you're right, but the market doesn't realize it yet. And what you're looking at absolutely confirms everything. Um, and so when you could have that kind of confidence, when you could find those situations, and I think they're very rare, they're like special situations and uh, not not in the special situations investment sense. They're, they're truly special because of the rarity with which they come up about. Um, those are the situations where you can really take a meaningful swing and make a considerable amount of uh, money in very short periods of time. But you know, too much confidence is far more dangerous than too little confidence in markets. And so I think it's really, really apt that you focused on this uh, idea of overconfidence. Um, and one of the areas, though, where I think too little confidence is a really big problem uh, was this other reference, the halo effect or cloning. 
Um, I've often said this on the podcast before, but you cannot outsource conviction. So you need to have your own confidence that an idea is right, which for most people, I think means you need to do your own work. You need to take a thesis that someone else may have presented to you and make it your own if that idea didn't originate with you, with your own work. Um, And it has to fit your framework no matter what, because the day you buy a stock, you're effectively flipping a coin. And that day, the stock might go up or down, right? 50-50, whatever. No matter what you know, no matter how freaking confident you are that day, it very well might end up that end up down after that day. It might end up down the day after that and a week after that and a month after that. It takes time, right? If you're investing in a five-year time horizon, you could be wrong, according to Mr. Market, for a pretty damn long time. And it's up to you to decide whether you're wrong or Mr. Market's wrong. And you have to keep making these decisions and you have to keep thinking about that. So, you know, for some pretty long period of time, your thesis is actually really just being judged based on a coin toss. And so if the stock goes down before it goes up, you know, you need to have confidence that your work justifies staying around in that situation. And I've given this example before, but it's worth repeating here. Roku was down 15 straight days before I had one update. And meanwhile, here I am over the last uh, three years. It's my single biggest source of return in my book. Uh, But I had to have a certain confidence and I had to you know, even face questions from a uh, one client in particular about why the hell do we own this thing that does nothing but go down, um, right? That'll test your confidence when a client, when you're managing other people's money and a client you really like and really respect on a personal level says, what the hell are we doing here? You know, confidence isn't just about uh, having it inside you. It's about having to be questioned by the market and having to be questioned about other people and being able to stick through it. Um, so confidence is really hard. Uh, but you know, again, it all has to be approached with humility. You do, if you don't find yourself asking yourself, am I wrong? And thinking about that, then, then there's something like very scary. And I think that's, uh, you know, really problematic. Um, so those are some of the things that come to mind right away. Curious to hear what you, uh, what you have to say as well, John. Yeah, those are great points. Um, you know, I'm reminded of the quote by uh, Seth Klarman that you need to balance arrogance and humility in the market and he says that when you buy anything it's it's an arrogant act in a way because you're saying you know better than Mr. Market or uh, basically the the person that is on the other side of the trade um, or the consensus you can look at it any way you 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 like but basically I think that that speaks to that um, you know issue of cons- confidence versus overconfidence you you need some confidence in order to make those non-consensus contrarian investments that uh, ultimately can uh, deliver great returns, but you have to have enough humility to recognize that you could be wrong and, uh, and that should help you not be overly confident. Um, for me, this issue of confidence versus overconfidence is even more important at the portfolio level rather than the security selection level, because I feel like um, even if you know something can be a zero, as long as um, the kind of upside to downside ratio is sufficiently attractive, uh, you know, you're getting that proverbial coin flip for uh, a very good price. Um, that's 
that's worth doing, uh, but you gotta really not uh, mess it up at the portfolio level where you get overly confident in that coin flip and size it such that if it goes uh, the other way, you're gonna have a material impairment um, to deal with. And uh, you know that that also reminds me of what Stevie Cohen talked about on the portfolio management level, that there are three things that can really mess you up. Uh, one being leverage, the other concentration, and finally illiquidity. And he kind of said, you know, if you got one of those in there, you, depending on what kind of investor you are and how comfortable you are with these things, you can manage it. But once you get to two of those or even three, you're kind of whistling past the graveyard. And I think that would go to that topic of overconfidence. You know, you're going to basically find two or three of those present with people who are overconfident um, and are really not uh, have not come to terms with the fact that they could be wrong. Um, you know, one trick that I use uh, in my own investing is kind of um, I've seen people get carried away with a stock that is working and that can cause them to become overconfident, uh, both on the long and the short side. Um, you know, some people short down because they think the story has finally broken and they can just short it down to zero, or they keep buying a stock that's been going up a lot because they get more and more confident in their, in their own thesis. And so what I like to ask myself when I'm looking at buying a stock um, primarily is kind of what is the easier decision here for an average investor, let's say, is it to buy or to sell this stock? And, um, and, and that helps me because when you have a stock that's been performing extremely well, let's say a Shopify or one of those uh, real high flyers, I think for the average investor, the easier decision is to buy that stock. And that tells me, wait a minute, you know, that's probably not a security where I want to necessarily uh, be going long. On the other hand, if there's a stock that's been really beaten down and I've done the work and I feel like I see something that the market doesn't, again, that question, what's the easier decision for the average investor to buy or to sell it? And, you know, there are some stocks that are just much easier to pull the plug on and say, hey, I got this wrong. I don't want to see this on my screen anymore. It's been a nightmare. And just to dump it for really no fundamental reason, uh, but fear uh, or being fed up with it. And that makes it then uh, interesting for me. So those are just a few thoughts. One other point I'll make, we've, we've used sports analogies in the past, so I'll go to the well one more time. I, I think about this a lot because if you think about anything, whether it's you know something like buying a single security, starting a fund, starting a restaurant, pursuing a professional sports career, these are all low probability propositions, right? The, the base rate of all of these is pretty unfavorable. The failure rate's really high. I mean, the vast, vast majority of superstar athletes at 16, 17, 18 years old do not ever make a professional career out of it, right? I mean, I think 
something like one in a couple hundred high school players is ever going to play in the pros and something like, you know, one out of every hundred or one out of every 175 division one college football players is ever going to play in the NFL. And then if you make it to the NFL, you're going to have about a three and a half year career on average, right? I mean, these are really high failure rate experiences, but what's a way to take a high failure rate and make it a hundred percent failure rate. It's to lose your confidence. Right. And I've thought about this in a bunch of different contexts. So I, I read, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago about Christian Pulisic, the, the international soccer star who was born and raised in Pennsylvania and then moved to Germany when he was 16. And, you know, his dad was a was a pretty high level player himself at one point, not anywhere near the same level. But he said the only thing they ever talked about was confidence was that before every game, you had to have confidence. You had to believe in yourself because if you lost that belief in yourself, you had absolutely no chance. And everybody who's ever stood in the batter's box or stood over the first tee and or tried to make a short putt, tried to do anything, right? Bowling, dart. if you don't have confidence that you can do something, you're already sunk. And so if you, it's the same sort of thing in investing, which is why I think you see people go on exaggerated hot and cold streaks that can really kind of whips all their results. If you've lost your confidence and you just don't think you're seeing things anymore, you, you can't quite analyze the way the world's going, you can really exacerbate a trend against you, right? You, you have to maintain this balance of believing in yourself, but not over-believing in yourself. And, you know, in some regards, it's crazy, but, you know, the guys that can over-believe in themselves without killing themselves, the the people who can take the big home run risks without playing Russian roulette, I don't know of a better way to put this, are the ones that are really going to get the payoffs. Right? I've thought about it even with my own son. You know, when I played low level sports, I was always kind of make the extra pass, you know, play as a team, do the, do the dirty work kind of thing. And that's kind of how I was like to play no matter what the game was. And my, my son who plays sports is the one who's always chucking threes and swinging for the fences. And I, I kind of shake my head sometimes. And I've had multiple coaches say that his infectious self-confidence is the best thing he's got going for him. And you kind of need that, right? You don't want to hurt your team. You don't want to be reckless, but you know, you're going to miss every shot you don't take kind of thing. Right. So as I said at the beginning, uh, it's a paradox, right? <laughs> There's certainly no good answers here. Yeah, I think those are a lot of really interesting points because um, when you do approach something with uh, out confidence, like I, I, I've often lamented this whole idea of the hot hand fallacy, right? Um, because what, what I think about often, I remember the slump that David Wright went through at the plate where you like looked at him and he just, totally wasn't comfortable when he stepped up there and wasn't ready to take a swing and he couldn't approach it with confidence at all. And so when you're stepping up there without confidence, you're basically setting yourself up for failure uh, from the beginning. Um, but then, you know, beyond that, one of the other things I think about as you were talking is, uh, you know, both John, you invoked this idea of at the portfolio level and uh, Phil, you talked about like, not putting yourself in these like really bad positions that could uh, impair you too critically. Um, Soros, I think, I think, you know, I talked about the hypothesis thing, but his rule number one was like, stay alive, live to fight another day. And if you live to fight another day, you know, things might not work for a while, but you might, you, you, you'll eventually put yourself in position to find something that does work. Um, so I think, you know, that's one of the key ways, uh, this idea of portfolio management, 
Uh, it's a key way to balance a combination of your confidence and your humility. And for me, like another thing I think about, like to tie it further to the portfolio and position management, you know, I I believe in what I call semi-concentrated investing. So there's some context where I'd be called concentrated. Others people would say, oh, you're not very concentrated at all. To me, the right number is like 20 positions. Why 20? Well, you know, I in an ideal world, I'd take 10 and that's enough diversification in theory to not have any one position be catastrophic. But 20 gives me a little extra comfort that, you know, in some of these areas where I very well might be wrong, you know, I'm very cognizant of my fallibilities. And, uh, you know, it gives, it helps me uh, sleep better at night. I remember uh, the title of the essay at the, that, that was attached to Common Stocks on Common Profits uh, called The Conservative Investor Sleeps Well at Night. And I think that's something that, you know, I kind of latched onto in a different way than some other people would. But I think all these things, I, I, I like the invocation of portfolio management here. I think that makes a lot of sense. All right. Terrific. Well, fascinating discussion, guys. Uh, let's move over to you, Elliot, for your uh, topic of the week. Okay. Yeah. So what I wanted to talk about uh, is idea generation and what it takes to get to know quickly, uh, get to saying no quickly and moving on to the next idea. And then also some reasons like others often say no that I don't. Um, idea generation, I find to be like one of the most fun, stimulating parts of investing. I like reading broadly. I like reading interesting things. I like thinking about top-down questions, like what's, uh, what are the big trends? What's really important? Uh, you know, very much related to Phil's topic in last week's podcast about you know some of these some of these bigger uh, thematic ideas and paying attention to what's there. Um, but I also you know like reading about on the bottoms up level, like what's quality, what's beautiful, what's like perfection look like in a business. So you know, trying to get familiar with all these things, and I like turning over a lot of rocks. I think you know, there's that Munger quote. It's a competition of who turns over the most rocks, which is kind of ironic considering they take very few swings, right? Keep your bat on your shoulder, no called strikes, whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, there's something to be said about looking far and wide, about turning over a lot of rocks and trying to see what ideas are out there, what ideas might pique your interest and pull you in. Um, and what I like to do in general is, you know, spend a lot of my time sifting through the, the, the world, figuring out what might or might not be interesting until something just like so strongly grabs my mind that I can't help but look at anything else for the next month or whatever it may be. Um, and so, you know, while I find this to be the most fun part, I, I think, you know, you don't want to spend 100% of your time on that because it'll never end up going deep enough into something that, uh, you know, um, is, is worthwhile and having the confidence and conviction that we've been talking about. Um, so what I figured I'd do is start by saying some of the reasons that I say no immediately um, and some of the reasons other people might say no that I don't, and then ask you guys uh, where you stand on some of these things and how you approach idea generation um, and and making sure that you're turning over a lot of things but not spending time beyond where it might or might not have any interest, any appeal, where it won't inevitably get into your portfolio. Um, so, you know, to me, some of the reasons I like to say no, uh, and these haven't always been the case for me, but you know, once they get to be there, that is what it is. That's where I'm at. Um, I now, like, I, I won't invest in something that doesn't have growth, something that's shrinking. I formerly had some involvement with what you could call melting ice cubes or things that are shrinking. I don't have good outcomes when I get into those areas. It doesn't mean I don't invest in slow growth, but 
I require some degree of growth because I think that's a source of margin of safety and it proves that there's a degree of resilience that's in the company. Now, there's a, another side to that. The company might purposely be shrinking themselves by shedding assets. I don't count it that way. I'd look at the actual lines of business and I want to make sure they're at least growing uh, faster than GDP by a little bit. Um, I don't like when customers feel stuck. So a lot of people like customer uh, stickiness and switching costs, but I don't like when customers don't like the fact that they're stuck and they're not eager to engage with the company. I think that's something, you know, I've, I've, I've seen presented as a source of moat, but when people feel stuck, uh, there's not an affinity. And I really like when there's an affinity there. Uh, I don't like when management doesn't own a lot of the company or have good incentive structure to generate positive outcomes. Uh, I don't like bad actors or bad people. I don't like when companies don't uh, do things the right way. So I have like a two-strike policy of wrongdoing if they do things wrong. And, you know, that's obviously uh, subjective to a certain extent. But if they do things wrong in two different ways, I'm definitely not going to be looking at them any further. I personally don't invest in commodities or utilities. Like those are spaces I'll entirely stay away from for better or worse. You know, there may be opportunities in there, but they're not my opportunities or things I can't fit into my own worldview. Um, I don't invest in geographies where I don't trust the rule of law. I think that's something extremely important. And without me believing fundamentally in the society, I mean, there's a reason why Buffett says to bet on America, right? We've got a very long established history as far as, uh, global history is concerned of uh, this kind of respect. Um, you know, some people might quibble about certain administrations, but like I, I, by and large, don't trust countries and geographies where the rule of law isn't well established and there are questions about ownership. Um, I will not invest in a company where I can't come close to figuring out the unit economics. This is incredibly important for me. This is something I didn't do like five years ago. Um, where I'd be a little more comfortable working with the aggregates. I have to get to the granular level and I have to understand specifically what drives one transaction for the company, like one unit of transaction for the company. Um, you know, there's certain kinds of businesses where it's where, where it's a little more challenging than others. If I really can't understand it, I'm out. I'm not going to even look at it. I'll move past that rock rather quickly. And I also won't get involved in situations where there's way too much leverage. Now, I understand there could be really attractive upside in certain cases, but it's not for me. And I know it's not for me. And so those are things uh, that I stay away from. Now, I also figured I'd talk about ones I've heard other people say they won't uh, get involved in, but um, like reasons others say no, that I don't. Um, there are some people that really don't like areas where there's too much change or lack of clarity going forward about what the business looks like. And I kind of find those situations to be interesting. I like dynamism. I like situations where there is change and there's a state of flux because that creates, you know, pretty wide range of possible outcomes. And if I could do good work and understand it, hey, you know, I might take a look. And again, these aren't companies that I'd invest in. These are companies that I probably should take a step back here and say what I'm talking about is taking a world of all stocks and narrowing it down to a list of stocks that I might be willing to do a deeper dive and work on. So, you know, if there's a lot of change, that doesn't keep me away. That doesn't keep a company from going onto my list. Um, another thing that doesn't keep a company from going onto my list of interesting is uh, that it's not cheap. In fact, sometimes I find very expensive companies absolutely worth putting on my list, and that being the time to work on them. Because when things get cheap, 
you know, things move very fast in the market. Uh, when some of these really quality companies get sold off, they tend to be some of the first ones to get bought back up. And you have to be ready to act before the opportunity presents itself, not start your work only once it gets cheap. So sometimes it's almost more worth paying attention to what's really expensive so that when the day comes that it's not, uh, you can take your swing, right? You could, you, you, you won't get called on a called strike there. Um, even though that doesn't truly apply in investing. Uh, I don't preclude companies with too much stock comp. And maybe I'll trigger some people by having said that, but I absolutely think way too many people fear excess stock comp as a reason not to be involved when they like everything else except for that. Um, but oftentimes, I've never seen stock comp be the deterministic variable in whether an idea works or not. It absolutely influences the level of upside that can be achieved, but it does not ever influence whether an idea is right or wrong. Um, cyclicality is a reason is another reason why some people will say they don't invest in cyclical companies. Um, I find cyclicality to be interesting. I especially am fond of growth cyclicals. They're inherently interesting to me. Um, I also don't fear seasonality. Seasonality is very tricky and very tough to get a grasp on. And businesses that tend to be seasonal tend to have lower valuations, but I find seasonality to be very interesting. Um, and Last on this little list I had, I um, don't fear very lumpy growth where you don't know the where, where you can't really talk in terms of Kager because you know it moves more in like a stair-shaped pattern. Um, I actually find those to be quite appealing. So these are some of my uh, reasons to say no and reasons others say no that I don't. Curious uh, what gets on your guys' list and just general context on how you approach idea generation and some of the things you do. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the quicker you get to know, the better you'll be because you won't waste your time. You won't be sucked into making dumb mistakes. So uh, this definitely ties into what we were talking about earlier. And it's a huge lesson I've learned. I mean, I wasted hundreds, literally thousands of hours. You know, I've gotten better at it in the last three to five years, I think, a lot better. Uh, but certainly, if you look back more than five years ago, let's say the first 10 years that I was investing uh, professionally, I wasted so much time not saying no right away to companies that just had no business. I mean, they weren't going to deserve my capital. They shouldn't have deserved my capital, let alone my time and attention. So I should have said no right away. So I think the number one thing for me is a business that I wouldn't own outright. So I think I got sucked into securities that were cheap and ignored businesses that were just terrible. Uh, and I should say this a couple of different ways. Businesses that were terrible in that they were they were poor commercial enterprises, also businesses where I would not be comfortable owning them outright. I've actually never owned um, a casino, let's say, but I just personally, and this is not a moral judgment of any kind, but I wouldn't want to own a tobacco company or a casino where I thought the business model was predicated on basically taking advantage of other people in a sense that, you know, if people want to gamble or smoke, that's certainly up to them. That doesn't mean I have to be the one handing them yeah, you know, the opportunity to do that and profiting at an unreasonable rate from that, in my opinion, a lot of times. So look, you know, those businesses have every right to exist. They're going to always exist. Doesn't mean I have to participate in them. I'm not going to be the one running them. Right. I always try to hold myself to the standard of being the best 
performing the best informed, the most enthusiastic director on any company's board of directors. And if I can't picture myself taking that role right away, I just shouldn't go any further, right? Because if I'm not going to be in that role, figuratively or literally at some point, then I'm not going to have done the work on the company. I'm not going to have thought through all the myriad issues affecting the company. I'm not going to have the right time horizon looking at the company. So that that kills it for me really quickly. The other thing that kills, you know, the other, what other whatever other percentage of ideas that are left that probably get me to 98 or 99% of companies that get killed in relatively short order is just beyond my comprehension. So I don't have a particularly strict filter on things that I'll look at. Um, I'd like to think I'm capable of understanding things in multiple industries and multiple geographies. And I think to a point you were, you were kind of getting at, Elliot, I think the more rocks you turn over, the better informed you'll be. I think you need that mental database and that physical or digital database of ideas and concepts, uh, structures, transactions that you've looked at that can inform what you're doing. I think it's super, super important. So, And I think being overly narrow and overly siloed in one industry, one geography can actually be detrimental. Um, I certainly saw it right away when everyone who covered financials and housing just seemed completely incapable of wrapping their head around what was clearly happening right before their their eyes, right? Um, it happens in every industry. It happens in, in every sector. Uh, so I think one way to avoid that is to just kind of try to stay a little bit broader, or at least in your reading and your thinking. Um, but you know, other things that might that, that will kill things right around the margins if it passes those first two big filters. Uh, you, you mentioned this as well, but bad management. Um, and by that, I mean just people I wouldn't hire or partner with or work for. And it, you know, it's a it's a Justice Potter Stewart kind of test. You know when you see it, but um, the, the other element of it is bad incentives because I've seen so many cases over the years. This is something I didn't understand as early as I wish I did is that bad incentives can create bad people and bad is in air quotes, but you get the idea, right? That with the wrong set of incentives, pretty much anyone can end up with bad behavior or bad outcomes. And that applies to me. Like if I were put in certain circumstances at various points in my life, including potentially right now with the wrong set of circumstances and the wrong set of people around me and the wrong biases acting upon me, I could definitely uh, get lured down some bad paths. So when I see bad incentives in place that are very likely to cause bad behavior in people, I just kind of run the other direction right away, regardless of how awesome the business is, how cheap it is, who else owns it, all that stuff. Um, yeah, like you said, I I can I just stop when it's a country that doesn't observe the rule of law. I frankly find the whole situation in China right now really bizarre because the rhetoric's changed, I guess, in the last month or two, but nothing fundamentally has really changed. I mean, anyone who thinks this is like some massive sea change that's happened this summer is kidding themselves. I mean, these structures that were all set up through the Cayman Islands and whatnot. I mean, there's a, there's a reason for all of it. And, um, it's just not, I wouldn't ever own, I wouldn't literally be allowed to own the whole enterprise outright. So why would I want to own a little fractional share of it through a British Virgin Islands depository trust or a VIE? So I don't know. I find the whole thing kind of bizarre. If I can't understand it, if I can't read it, the original documents or, you know, a company produced exact translation of them, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be difficult. So I, you know, one thing I don't do, I, I think valuation is a horrible first filter to kill something. 
um, just because you can get really lazy and something can look optically expensive, even when it's not, that's cost me a lot, a lot of money and a lot of mistakes over the years. Um, so I try to leave valuation to the very, very end. That is not something that will cause me to get to a quick no is valuation. It will cause me to get to more no's than I would like. I mean, there's lots of good businesses running around right now where I spend time on them and, and get all the way to the end. And then the valuation is just a little bit out of reach. But to your point, Elliot, you do the work now and, and hope for a better day with a, with a more favorable valuation and according set of odds. I personally, I guess in some slight dif- differences of opinion, I don't mind companies that are not growing or, or even running off, uh, at least if the incentives are correct and, and what's being done is rational and reasonable. Uh, I agree though, it's tough. Like it probably takes a, a tough situation, i.e., investing and makes it even harder, but it's just not something I would rule out. I actually have had success there for good reason. I think so. That's something I would I would gladly look at. Um, I also don't mind if a company's overlevered, if there's a reason for it and a plan to do something about it. And if the risks of what we talked about earlier of of overconfidence and killing myself are are palatable and on a you know kind of insurance underwriting basis, it's something I can stomach. I mean, over leverage is not a hard no for me by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I do think a great point you made was I think stuck customers. I mean, you look at things like, oh, I'm going to own, I'll, I'll pick on Comcast just or Verizon. Uh, I've had particularly bad experiences with both companies lately. And, you know, it's like, oh, they're captive customers. And it's like captive is <laughs> the wrong concept, I think, because Nobody's that captive for that long, particularly when you're capitalizing things at multiples that imply multi-multi-year customer relationships. So that that is a bad reason. Uh, if the entire investment thesis is predicated on a stuck customer rather than a repeat happy customer, I agree. That's a that's going to be a hard no for me pretty quickly. So, uh, what about you, John? Yeah, uh, really interesting. Uh points you guys raised. I think this this notion of saying no quickly, I, I probably heard that first from Monish Pabrai, uh, but it's something I do a lot as well because I do like to look at uh, a lot of ideas and so being able to say no quickly uh, is important. Um, I'm going to kind of uh, be in the other camp on valuation. For me, that is a quick no if a company is uh, just way too expensive and uh, you know let's say something is 50 times sales um i just kind of it goes a little bit back to the the idea of base rates if something's at 50 times sales normally it's going to be hard to get a good return maybe um you know this is an exception but for me it, it also just doesn't excite me to pay a, a, a ton of money um it's Again, maybe a, more of a personal bias, but I get excited when I I can pay little for something that I think is is worth a lot. Even though here, you know, maybe something trading at ten times sales is going to maintain that multiple and be growing, uh, you know, sales at thirty uh, percent a year. So you end up with thirty percent return. So it can absolutely work, but just for me um, personally. Uh, it's not something I get uh, very excited about. Um, unfriendly management, definitely a big one. And I learned this the hard way. I just kind of, when I started out, assumed that uh, all managements were doing the right thing and taking their fiduciary responsibility uh, seriously, you know, including the board. 
Um, and I just learned that that's absolutely not the case. Um, so that's a big one. And then uh, probably the other um, one for me is just kind of, uh, do I know enough to to feel comfortable buying the whole company? And by know enough, I don't mean um, having done all the due diligence and, and all of that, because we're talking about saying no quickly. I mean more, is this the kind of company that I could uh, know enough about to be able to say, you know, this valuation is a great price. So let's say, um, you know, I'd feel comfortable with a, with a sports club versus a biotech company. So for a biotech company, I'd probably just say no uh, very, very quickly, unless it's some kind of a special situation where, you know, their technology isn't uh, that key to the story. Um, yeah, those are probably a few that that I'd highlight, but uh, you guys mentioned a bunch that uh, that that apply in my case as well. And one one last thing, uh, Phil, on that point of uh, bad incentives causing bad behavior, I totally agree. I think you know it's it's a little bit like, like that quote about power that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts mm. absolutely. Um, and yeah, bad incentives can absolutely cause otherwise good people to do bad things. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that does apply. Uh, the the linkage between power and the, you know the incentives and uh, I, I the other nuance I'd add to that is that I think you have to be really mindful of the incentives and the culture around incentives in the sense of a slippery slope because pretty much all the big disasters that I've seen uh, going back even to you know what blew up some companies coming out of the nifty fifty certainly going into the dot-com bus, certainly going into the financial crisis times a thousand, and even more recently, and just idiosyncratic kind of one-off things. My personal belief, which is untestable, but I think is well-supported, is that all of the major disasters you can point to in corporate America have an incentive-related component. Enron, Wells Fargo, Theranos, Valiant, they were all legitimate at their core in the sense that they had a reason to at least initially exist. And they were all, in my opinion, run by people who succumbed to bad incentives, not the other way around. So I don't think in those cases, there's any evidence to support this idea that they were people that woke up one morning and said, I'm going to cook up a master plan just to go screw the world over and defraud my investors and commit securities fraud and wire fraud and everything else that's going on. I, you know, And I think you could even make the case of of that for Bernie Madoff, who is, you know, by all definitions, a complete sociopath and a liar at every level. But I think it started out with a set of really difficult circumstances and personal incentives and organizational incentives he'd created for himself that allowed this slippery slope to just become completely and totally out of control. So that's why it's such a hard immediate no for me is because I don't know where on that slope we are, right? I mean, there are cases where incentives are a little bit screwed up the culture's tilting things in the wrong direction, and you're you're probably going to get some bad outcomes. But then you get some brave internal leader or leaders who who steer the car out of the ditch and kind of save the day. But I have it's so hard. How are you going to know that from the outside? It's hard to even know that from the inside. So that's why I just completely and totally avoid it. Yeah, those situations are the most challenging in a lot of ways uh, because you know at the end of the day we are outsiders and looking in and we're never going to have like perfect information on a company and everything we're doing is like, you know, we're making 
decisions in an uncertain world. And that ties a lot to the confidence and humility, right? You want to think you know as much as anyone else about the company, but you never will because you're not on the inside. You can't possibly, but you want to know then know as much as anyone who's outside the company and you very well might, but it doesn't mean you'd even get the outcome you want knowing everything you could possibly know. So there are multiple layers of challenges. Like I've often uh, mused about this question. There are certain companies, even if you told me the earnings in advance, I couldn't even tell you how they'd move, right? Because you have to know the expectations of the average person. And um, you know that too is really challenging. Um, just want to touch on a couple of things that you guys mentioned. Um, you know, Phil, I think that point on you know not wanting to waste time and having wasted time in certain areas, that was something that I reflected on myself. That's so freaking important. We're like really small firms, right? Where I don't like saying competing against larger firms to an extent we are, to an extent we are not, because we could play our own games, so to speak. Uh, but we just can't really afford to waste a lot of time. Like obviously when you're making very few decisions a year, you could afford to be patient and spend time on things that don't have immediate fruits, but you absolutely can't afford to have wasted the time on something that's got no ROI for you. So that's why I think it's getting to know is so freaking important, right? Get to it fast and don't waste your time on areas where you're not going to get an actual uh, idea that's worth working on or some sort of nugget that's going to help you with other ideas elsewhere. You know, that's one of the reasons why I like paying attention to some of the expensive companies, because oftentimes you'll have these nuggets that are very applicable outside of just you know, the potential that one of these companies might get cheap in the future. And you never know where it might be, but, um, you know, not to keep mentioning Roku, but I was working on Trade Desk before I got to Roku. And it was through that work that led me there. Um, and so those kinds of things are interesting. Um, so, you know, and I just wanted to add one more thing. So it's not necessarily about buying some of these expensive things anytime in the immediate future, uh, but it's about appreciating the quality that makes them expensive at the time they're expensive. Because when they're getting cheap, you could be damn sure that the entire prevailing narrative is going to focus on everything that's wrong with them. And they're going to sound like the worst companies in the world while things you know, are going less well. And so you know, I think it's helpful to have had the color and perspective of when things weren't uh, heading that way. And then, yeah, Phil, I had a feeling you might look at some of the places I'd say no, but I think that's great. I think that's awesome. And I you know, I, I, I love uh, hearing some of these perspectives. Yeah. And I think that's just stylistic. You know, I'd look, I mean, a, a very good, very successful, rational venture capitalist is going to look in places where I'd say no right away. But I think, and so whether it's hyper growth, moderate growth, shrinkage, right? I mean, that, that to me is like all very secondary from the foundational stuff we talked about, which is that I don't care what your style of investing is or what framework you're deploying, you'd probably be better off if you would just avoid and say a quick no to businesses that you wouldn't own entirely outright and businesses where you felt like they were beyond your comprehension and businesses where you felt like the incentives had the risk of creating bad people or bad outcomes. Like those three things to me are just so foundational. And then look, yeah, I mean, is it good to look at leveraged or over leveraged companies versus completely clean balance sheets? I mean, that's we're we're splitting hairs at a certain level at that point. Right. So. All right. Well, uh, this has been a terrific discussion and uh, Elliot, I'm glad that this pod is a good uh, ROI for uh, for you and not a waste of time. So uh, hopefully... <laughs> without a doubt, it's awesome.
Excellent, excellent. Well, Phil and I will keep trying hard to uh, to make it that way. And uh, Phil, I love your uh, the statement you had about uh, beliefs that are untestable but well supported. I might uh, use that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, there's no. I, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with this whole concept of you know proving a counterfactual, which of course you can't do, but you can at least think through it. And so. You know, I'd throw out this idea to people all the time. It, it started actually with Enron, which is like, all right, you know, if you look at the case here, like, I don't think there's a huge body of evidence that supports that Ken Lay or Jeff Skilling or even Andy Fastow like woke up one morning and said, like, I'm going to commit massive amounts of fraud here. It was truly like a slippery slope. I think the evidence, but how do you test that? How do you disprove that? It can't be done. Right. So I think that's true of a lot of things, just like we talked earlier about what odds are calculable and what odds are not. And the same applies to this. And John, I want to add one more note on that ROI, because as much as I love talking to you and Phil every week, and I do, another piece of it is also, I've had great feedback from you listeners out there. So keep it up. I really have enjoyed some of the conversations and some ideas some of you have put on my plate to keep uh, sifting through. So that's one of the coolest parts of this all. Um, So thank you, everyone. Agreed. And I'll uh, second that as well. Um, keep keep your questions and comments coming. Uh, they give us great uh, fodder and ideas for uh, what to talk about uh, on these weekly episodes. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to you, Phil and Elliot. Till next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.